follow along in your in your Bibles will be uh, in the New King James. The scriptures on the board will be from the New King James. And I think it's customary that we back up and review just a little bit. Uh, it seems to be the norm anyway. So I just want to look. I'm sure Jason covered this last time, but I want to look at the last few verses of Acts, the fourth chapter, because it contrasts with the fifth chapter. The wonderful things that were going on in the church in the fourth chapter of Acts are contrasted with what occurred immediately in the fifth chapter. So I'd just like to cover that real quickly. Acts 4, starting there in verse 32. Get this all arranged here. Okay, verse 32. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. What a wonderful attitude. What a wonderful beginning to the church. And we had the lowest point possible, the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and, but he arose. The incredible energy from that and the growth of the church and it taking off. And all that is felt here. The camaraderie and the love and the generosity of this group of Christians as the church was just exploding. And it was because of the fellowship they had. One heart and one soul. And they even had all things in common. If a person had something of value, he was not above selling that and taking it and laying it at the apostles' feet and, and to help someone out who was struggling. Verse 33, And with great power the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. The grace of God, they weren't blessed with earthly things. They were giving up earthly things. God blessed them with his grace, with this amazing inner peace, with the grace of God that can only be felt by sincere Christians. Verse 34, nor was there anyone among them who lacked. For all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. So this great grace, they brought these things and they were witnesses. The apostles were witnesses Hebrews 2 and 4, familiar passage, says God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. God confirmed the message by giving witness and confirming the messengers. That was confirmed unto us by them that heard him. Verse 35, they brought these things and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, Oesus, I'm glad they changed his name to Barnabas. It's a lot easier to say than, than whatever Joseph's correct is there. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So these, these magnanimous gestures was not unusual. This seemed to be the one that they pointed to. But these amazing Christians were not, uh, didn't regard things so tightly, these earthly things. They were willing to part with those things and help a lot of the poor Christians. Early Christians were poor, were slaves, were destitute and difficult. That's why one of the reasons why Christianity was so attractive to them. And they brought it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Notice it wasn't at Peter's feet. Peter wasn't preeminent. 
they laid it at the apostles' feet. And we'll learn more about Barnabas in the, in the coming chapters and the influence that he had in the church. So he was singled out. So we see here the magnanimous gestures and the, and the generosity and, and the grace of God was in the church. And we see all these things as the, as the church is, is growing and, and surging from the depths of the crucifixion and then the resurrection and, and now the Holy Spirit is working through these apostles, through the early Christians, and we see this surge. And then we get, of course, that's a reference to Barnabas, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. But then we see the account. Brings us to chapter 5 of Ananias and Sapphira. The fifth chapter tells us, starting here in verse 1, but a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession. And he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Again, at the apostles' feet. But they kept back part of this possession, of this purchase. Kept back part of it. They wanted to be part of this. They wanted to be part of that camaraderie. They wanted to be part of, of all the things that they could see from the outside. They wanted to serve, but they didn't want to do what it took. They didn't want to sacrifice. They wanted to be a part of that, but they wanted to hang on. They wanted to hang on. But Peter said, so when he walks in, can you imagine Ananias expecting to be congratulated? Ananias wanting to be, to be complimented on this possibly large gift. But what does Peter say? Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to, but to God. It was a common fund. It was common. And it was not mandatory. These donations, these gifts were made voluntarily. He tells him, was it not your own when it was still your land? And after you sold it, that was still your money. You could do whatever you wanted to. You could donate part of it. Or donate all of it. You know, sometimes this may have been a large gift. This may have been a large donation. And sometimes when it's large, we want to tend to overlook. Well, you know, it was, I don't blame them. See, that wasn't the deal. That wasn't the deal. The deal was it was conceived. The deal was it was devious. The deal was it was hypocrisy. They had a scheme. They misrepresented what they were doing. The Bible says, Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. For great fear came upon all those who heard these things. And the young men arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Even if this was a large sum of money, it may have been the largest sum they received. That didn't justify what they did. did it? it didn't justify what they were trying to accomplish when they did the devious nature of this. We'll talk a little bit more about it in a minute. That was about three hours later, verse 7, when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, Tell me whether you sold that land for so much. She said, Yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. And immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. They conceived this thing. 
James defines sin for us. And the New King James is a really eye-opening definition about sin. James 1 verse 13 tells us, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. When Then when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. When the plan is hatched, it produces sin. Then sin, when it's committed, matures and produces a child of its own. And that child's name is death. That's what they accomplished here. That's what they accomplished. These were some of the things they wanted. They wanted acceptance. Part of this wonderful thing that was going on, this group of Christians coming together in love and coming together in fellowship and coming together in generosity and all these things in the grace of God, the warmth and light of God. They wanted that acceptance. They wanted to be recognized in part of that. They wanted prominence in their respect, fellowship. The problem was they wanted the acceptance of man. They wanted the recognition of man the prominence of men, respect, and fellowship. And they could hang on to their greed while they were doing it. It was still a donation, Monty. It was still a donation. Here's what the sins they did to accomplish those things in misrepresenting th that gift. Peter tells them they lied to the Holy Ghost in verse 3. He tells them they lied to God there in verse 4. And in verse 9, he accused tells them emphatically, doesn't accuse them, tells them emphatically that they were tempting, testing, or trying, depending on your translation, the Holy Spirit of God. Scheming to misrepresent their action as a gift, as a sacrifice, rather than what it was. A con to buy favor. A con. A gift isn't a gift if we expect something back, if we're actually trying to accomplish something else. A sacrifice can't be called a sacrifice if we're using it to gain something. That's what they were doing. That's what they were doing. Chapter 4, we have sincerity and we have the church and we have the warmth and glow of the church contrasted with the hypocrisy and Satan's efforts to, to put down the church. Insincerity, pretense. It was just a con. But it's amazing what God accomplished with this sentence. It's amazing what God accomplished in the church. This terrible tragedy still produced growth and excitement in the things in the church that we don't often consider how God can use those things for his purpose as well. So let's consider a couple of things that did occur as a result of that. It ended any deliberate dishonesty in the church. It ended it. Any attempt, there was not a problem. And we'll read some scriptures to verify that here in just a minute. And by punishing evil, God recognizes sincerity. We're vindicated when we see evil punished and we're not. I don't know that I can say that because I'm sure I deserve whatever punishment I get. But, but the church, when it comes together and, and sincerity and and generosity and love and we see all the problems around us and we're still standing brothers and sisters that's the grace of God that's 
in spite of what's going on around us. If we pull together like this church did, that's what happens. That's what happens. In spite of what went on, the church grew. We're elevated, recognizing sincerity. It distinguishes. Righteousness is, is distinguished. It, it uplifts in the shadow of punishing evil. Proverbs 12 and verse 7, the wicked are overthrown and are not, but the house of the righteous shall stand. Romans 2 and verse 29, but he is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit and not in the letter. Peter told them, why have you conceived this thing in your heart? Not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. They were seeking the favor of men and disguising it as a sacrifice, as a gift. Back to our text there in verse 11. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Great things were done because of this. Verse 12, and through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. Yet none of the rest dared join them, but the people esteemed them highly. None of the rest dared. Why would that be? Because you're all in or don't come. No hypocrisy, no pretense. God would punish pretenders, those trying to take advantage. None of the rest dared, but there were true believers. Verse 14, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. In the depths of this tragedy, we see the church still surging. Incredible numbers, thousands upon thousands of new converts there in Jerusalem. Fear God. Notice what they said there. Great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Great fear is a wonderful thing. Proverbs 1 and 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Fear of God is a marvelous thing. We forget to do that, don't we? Okay, one more question regarding this, and it's, it's a minor little rat hole or rabbit hole. Did Peter actually carry out the sentence of death upon Ananias and Sapphira? A question I've asked myself a long time. First, we need to understand that Peter did not do this. God did it, but the question is whether it happened through Peter or independent of Peter. The Holy Spirit carried out this execution. So did Peter do this or did he himself uh, acting on, uh, through the Holy Spirit acting through him or was it done independent of him? For many years, I thought that he probably did. Like I say, it's no big deal. We know that God did this. That was the judgment of God, his Holy Spirit. But there's a couple of verses here that led me to believe that Peter might very well have done this. Verse 10, we already read, tells us that Sapphira immediately fell down at Peter's feet and breathed her last. So that was one scripture that kind of led me to think that maybe he did do this. And then there's verse 15 coming up that the next scripture we read there in our text. And it says, so that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at least the shadow of P Peter passing by might fall on some of them. So Peter was, was definitely regarded, uh, highly regarded after this by the people. So these are a couple of scriptures that uh, 
I thought gave me reason to think that possibly it was Peter who actually did this. After more and more study, well, first let's talk about what Peter could do, all the apostles. A really quick run through of, of these gifts of the Holy Spirit that they, that they uh, did possess. The, uh, the Great Commission, and Ian's going to talk about this next, next week, so I won't, I won't, we're just going to run, run through these abilities, these miraculous gifts of the Holy Ghost, and they include casting out demons, speaking in new tongues, taking up serpents, verse 19, and if they drink any deadly thing, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. That's a partial list. In 1 Corinthians 12, we have another list of these uh, miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit that these apostles possessed, that God had given them. And it talks about the word of wisdom. That's miraculous gift of wisdom, miraculous gift of knowledge, miraculous faith, miraculous gifts of healing, also by that Holy Spirit, a working of miracles, a prophecy. That's miraculous prophecy, discerning spirits, differentiating between different kinds of spirit, different tongues, and interpretation of tongues. So there, these are at least a partial list of what these apostles could do. And if you'll notice, um, there's no mention of apostles being, out to carry, being able to carry out a death sentence. It's, it's not on there. So I think that is significant. Um, and we have some other, other things that we need to consider also. But consider what Peter and the apostles, the abilities that they displayed for us here in the account of Ananias and Sapphira. Peter had miraculous knowledge of secret events. He knew exactly what they did. He didn't question them. He didn't say he did this. He stated facts and he knew exactly what they did. He knew what they were doing. He knew of their individual secret sin. Miraculous knowledge of that. So he did have those things. And he also knew the exact details of their death. He knew when it was going to happen. He knew where it was going to happen. And he knew how. how. It was going to happen. So these are things, and I don't know the discerning spirits may, that we mentioned earlier in 1 Corinthians might have been one of these. We don't know. But I don't think we also consider sometimes the depth and the magnitude and the magnificence of these gifts of the Holy Spirit that these apostles possessed. Powerful, miraculous, and undeniable gifts. So there are a number of reasons why I don't think Peter could carry this out. Even it was God doing it, but it didn't act through Peter. I believe he merely predicted their deaths. Number one, he would have been regarded as a person able to do that. Whether or not that was true, he, he would have been regarded as being able to do that, being special in that way. And they weren't after recognition for themselves. And the other thing, death sentence could only be carried out by Rome, and there's a pretty good chance that, that the Jews would have brought him before the magistrates and had him done. So for all those reasons, it's just, a, it's just an interesting sidebar. We know God did it. We know his Holy Spirit did it. And the chances are he did it independent <coughs> of Peter. But Peter had miraculous knowledge. I believe they all did, had miraculous knowledge of the details of that death, but he merely um, prophesied of it. 
takes us back to our text, verse 15 in Acts 5. So that they brought the sick out into the streets and laid them in beds and couches that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. Also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean, unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Then the high priest rose up, and all of those who were with him, which is a sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. So we have the Holy Spirit here, and that's going to be the theme throughout Acts. But we also, one of the very common things that happened is the apostles were constantly being cast into prison. So I was just doing some research on the common prison and what differentiated it from other prisons. And they, they tell me, historians tell me that there were two types of prisons. A private prison was operated independently of the government and it was used for debtors. Debtors prison that you may have heard about that. Then there were these public prisons which held people awaiting trial where they would generally be sentenced to death or slavery. They were cold, damp, stinking, rat-infested holes. Literally, they would dig a hole in the prison and you were cast down into the prison, oftentimes being cast into this hole. Then they would get a ladder and climb down in there and chain, chain them up. They were dug in close proximity to the sewers in many cases so that bodies could easily be dumped and floated downstream. Prison, prisons were meant to be a fate worse than death, to discourage crime. It wasn't a place that you could go and wait out for some years till sentencing happened. That's why we see the disciples praying so fervently in scripture when one of, for John the Baptist, for Peter, for the apostles when they were cast into prison because it was a death sentence if you were there very long at all. So that kind of gives us some context of the prisons that we're going to be seeing throughout Acts. Back to our text, verse 19. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they had heard that, they entered the temple early in the morning and taught. But the high priest and those which came with him came and called the council together with all the elders of the children of Israel and sent to the prison to have them brought out. But when the officers came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now when the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priest heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. Here we have an incredible, miraculous walking out of this maximum security, locked up, tight as a jug. They didn't worry about God's will. They didn't worry about how this amazing, miraculous, miraculous thing took place. They, okay, how's this going to affect us? That was their only concern. Wonder what the outcome's going to be. How is this going to affect our status in the community? Verse 25, so one came and told him, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. That had to be just as miraculous that they didn't run, that they didn't hide, that they were out in the open, they were teaching in the temple. Verse 26, then the captain went with the officers and brought them without violence 
for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And when the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. How ironic is that? That's exactly what they agreed to when they were screaming, Crucify him. Crucify him. Matthew 25, 27 and 25. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and our children. But we were just overstating then. We didn't really mean that. Don't bring his blood on us. Verse 29, And Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. Him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Reference back to Justin's lesson last Sunday on obedience. There was a promise given to these apostles by Christ, telling him about the Holy Spirit. Acts is often called the acts of the Holy Spirit because it was the acts of the apostles. It was the acts of the early church, but all of that was directed by the Holy Spirit, directly and indirectly by the Holy Spirit. And here's Jesus' promise to the apostles regarding this gift of the Holy Spirit. Luke 21 and 10, he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prison. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. But it will turn out for you as an occasion for testimony. Use these opportunities to preach. Verse 14, therefore settle it in your hearts not to meditate beforehand on what you will answer. For I will give you a mouth and a wisdom with which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. You will be betrayed even by parents and brothers, relatives and friends, and they will put some of you to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. They opened their mouth and out came gospel. They took pen in hand and started to write and they wrote down gospel. Take no thought, I will give you a mouth and wisdom, but you will be hated. And it was already starting, wasn't it? Back to our text, verse 33. When they heard this, they were furious and plotted to kill him. Then one of the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people and commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. This man had influence. He was commanding things to happen in the middle of the priests. He was a Pharisee. Of reputation. He said to them, Men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be somebody. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered and came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census and drew away many people after him. He also perished, and all who obeyed him were dispersed. Masterful defense he uses right here because these Jews said he was not of God. 
He was of man. And Gamaliel tells him, if that's true, what you're saying is true, then it's going to come to naught anyway. You don't have to worry about what the people think. It will come to naught if it's not of God. He's using a masterful defense here. Verse 38, it continues on. Gamaliel does, and he says, Now I say to you, keep away from these men and let them, let them alone, for if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. And they agreed with them. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So a masterful defense used their own arguments to free the apostles. If you're right, and this is of man, then it's going to come to naught anyway. But if it is of God, you will never defeat it and beat them. Not much mentioned there. Normal was 40 stripes, save one, beaten to a bloody pulp, just short of death. All of these things happening, all of these things you would think would be to the detriment of the church, but it wasn't. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Rejoicing, hard to walk. I can't imagine if it was indeed 39 stripes. I can't imagine walking, jumping and praising God, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Satan's attempts to stop, to discourage. The church grew in spite of it. Chapter 6. Now in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, the surge continued. The surge continued. Hope you can be back next week. God willing, Ian will have that, that study for us. We do not want to close without extending an invitation to anyone who's not received the gift of the Holy Spirit of God in obedience, baptism, or if you need the prayers of the church for any reason, please come forward and let us know as we stand and sing.